Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast devoted to exploring the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Viveka Morris. And I'm Lindsay Stern. We're your hosts, and we're really excited about the interview we're bringing you today about how our distant evolutionary cousins, cephalopods, are challenging ancient assumptions about the nature of consciousness. For decades, radio astronomers have combed the skies for signals from alien life. But according to our guest, Dr. Peter Godfrey-Smith, we've overlooked a form of intelligence so remote from ours it might as well be alien. It's our evolutionary cousin, the octopus, a sea-dwelling mollusk that made headlines in 2016 for escaping from a New Zealand aquarium through a drain pipe. Because our most recent common ancestor was so simple and ancient, says Dr. Godfrey Smith, the octopus amounts to an independent experiment in the evolution of large brains and complex behavior. It presents us with a mind in many ways radically different from our own, with which human divers and researchers have nonetheless managed to make contact. In so doing, this animal is challenging ancient ideas about consciousness, even the seemingly unshakable notion that the mind is necessarily distinct from the body. Dr. Godfrey Smith is a world-renowned and extraordinarily original thinker in the philosophy of science and the philosophy of mind. He's a professor at the University of Sydney in Australia, where he teaches in the School of History and Philosophy of Science. He's the author of five books, including Theory and Reality, An Introduction to the Philosophy of Science, The Philosophy of Biology, and Darwinian Populations and Natural Selection. An experienced scuba diver, he has spent years studying and interacting with an octopus colony in Australia, taking photos and videos that have been published in National Geographic, The New York Times, and elsewhere. He reflects on some of these encounters in his astonishing book, Other Minds, The Octopus, the Sea, and the Deep Origins of Consciousness, a book that is truly profound, thought-provoking, and awe-inspiring all at the same time. He also writes a fantastic blog on natural history and philosophy called Metazoan. Dr. Godfrey Smith, welcome to When We Talk About Animals. It's a pleasure to be here. So you're the only scuba diving philosopher that we've ever heard of. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, how did, how did you become um, a philosopher who studies octopuses? Well, I, I had done a little bit of scuba diving uh, when I was younger, before I, uh, before I uh, began working in earnest as a philosopher. And I uh, hadn't done a lot of it for some decades. And then uh, really as a, a way to relax a bit, I began spending more time in the water in a particular area in Australia near Sydney in a marine reserve called Cabbage Tree Bay. And the animals that I encountered there that really changed my, I guess, changed my relationship to animal life in some ways uh, were the giant cuttlefish, these extraordinary creatures that can these are big animals. They're, they're often about a meter long. They can change the entire color and pattern of their skin in, in less than a second. And they have a kind of uh, engagement with divers in some cases. They, they have a kind of curiosity. Uh, they were the animals that really got me interested in this general set of questions about the evolution of animal life. And once I'd begun to interact with giant cuttlefish, I then realized that octopuses had been around me all along, much more camouflaged, harder to see. And uh, I began to look at them, began to film them, began to study them, and realized at a certain point that there really was a philosophical project here, which has to do with the fact that, as you're emphasizing in your, in your introduction, there's such, a, uh, such an evolutionary gulf between us and them. Uh, the common ancestor, the last common ancestor that we share with these animals lived perhaps something like 600 million years ago, which is really pretty early in the evolution of, not the evolution of life, but the evolution of animal life. And that animal probably had a very simple nervous system, may have been a little flattened worm, probably, you know, measured in millimeters or a little larger. And from there, you have these two evolutionary lines, a line leading to us and a line leading to them. And the question of the similarities and differences uh, just seemed like an extremely important question to look at. 
And then philosophically, the question, what can we learn about the, the whole project of a biological and materialist uh, perspective on the mind? What can we learn about that project and its difficulties from looking at an animal so different from ourselves, but so complicated in what it does. Can we spell out a couple of those kind of common sense assumptions about the mind that might look plausible or compelling on their face, but that disguise potential muddles that thinking about octopuses help dissolve? You mentioned stream of consciousness, for example, in the book. Perhaps a good way to approach this is to is to think of the view of the mind that we've inherited from early modern philosophy, the, the, the philosophical projects that were central in the 17th and 18th and into the 19th and 20th centuries, there's a particular conception of the mind as, uh, as a kind of a, a, a unified place where mental events happen and as a kind of domain, a kind of realm and also as something that has a very unclear and perhaps contingent relationship to the body that an organism, in particular an animal, has. Uh, so one thing I think that is generally very informative when looking at animals different from ourselves is to think about what kind of difference it makes to that animal's life and experience to have the kind of body that it has. And the octopus's body is, is very different from ours. Uh, not just in its shape, but in the fact that it, it has uh, almost no hard parts. So whereas a body like ours is something that is, it, it gives us both constraints and opportunities from its form, from its joints, from the rigid parts of its, its structure, an octopus's body is uh, almost indefinitely flexible and protean and changeable. Uh, they can take on almost any form at all. And secondly, the nervous system in an octopus has a more intimate relationship, in a sense, with the body than what we find in our case. In our case, uh, I mean, there are lots of nerves outside of our brains, and there's uh, a lot of control systems that are not fully centralized in us. But the, that phenomenon is, is far more marked in the octopus. In, in octopus, they have a large nervous system, something like 500 million neurons, but more than half of those neurons are not found in the central brain at all, but spread through the body uh, in a way suffusing that body with, with the capacity for nerve-based control, suffusing it with nervousness. And that gives, I mean, the, the, the whole picture that we inherit from earlier philosophical traditions of a body as something that is semi-distinct from the mind, something that is being steered around by a central controller, rather than a picture in which the body is a more central player in the whole in the whole matter. Um, that traditional picture is is is, is very much uh, put into question by the octopus, which has such a different relationship between the control systems and uh, the thing being controlled, the, the, the material body itself. There's less of a distinction between the two. Now, when I, when I say these things, when I say it casts, uh, you know, it puts into a new light these relationships between body and minds, here I am assuming that it's, it's true that octopuses do have a kind of mind, that they aren't just uh, biological machines that are wholly non-mental. And I do think that. I, I think that in... Um, the case of the octopus, we have good reason to believe that there's experience that characterizes their, the, the way they live their lives. They, they experience their lives as they live them. Uh, they do have minds of a certain kind. And as I say, a mind with a quite different relationship to, to the body. It was interesting to hear uh, the point you were making about how 600 or 500 so million years ago, we diverged thinking about the history of how people thought about animals, too, because it makes me think in some ways about the old sort of great chain of being approach to humans and the way in which they thought about, you know, humans being the pinnacle of evolution up this one, um, uh, you know, one route or one ladder, basically. And then the octopus, which is problematic on many levels, scientifically, of course, but then the octopus having independently reached the same place in so many ways really throws into question a lot of the assumptions about humans being superior or a jump um, 
you know, mentally, well, you know, perhaps, as they say, you know, perhaps physically evolved, but clearly there's something mentally different about humans. And that really throws, uh, you know, throws a wrench into that sort of traditional way of thinking in a way that's very exciting, I think. That's right. The, the idea that there's a kind of scale or a ladder, uh, which was originally uh, a view that was not conceived in evolutionary terms, but then was brought over in a way into some versions of an evolutionary worldview. It's a very tenacious idea. Um, when I go to conferences and uh, talk to people and sometimes read things, mostly not in biology, but sometimes in biology, it's quite common to hear the phrase, uh, you know, the evolutionary scale. And people will ask questions like, uh, you know, where in the evolutionary scale do we think consciousness first appeared? And th the whole question is, is being very much misposed when that language is used. There is no evolutionary scale. The, the right way to think about evolution is in terms of, roughly speaking, a tree structure, where there's a sense in which we're at the top of the tree, but that's just because we're alive now and the earlier branchings were in the past. And all of the other organisms that are alive now are also at the top of the tree in, in the sense that uh, is coherent. So octopuses are... Um, they're far from us, but also at the top of the tree, and so are uh, plants and bacteria and, and things like that. Somehow, even people who officially have, I think in their minds, uh, something like that picture, a tree-based view of evolution, still think in terms, in some contexts, of a scale or a ladder and an ordering between higher and lower. So the phrase lower animals and higher animals is still sometimes used. But that is a... I mean, that's something that really has to be, I think, uh, gotten over when we think about the overall shape of life on Earth. And octopuses, as you say, are a, a, in some ways a kind of useful reminder of that. I mean, an octopus is not below us. It's uh, in the only sense that's coherent, you know, at the same level of us as us because it's uh, at the top of the tree on a different branch from our branch. It's not below us. There was no octopus-like ancestor uh, in our past. There were sort of worm-like ancestors and, and fish ancestors in our past. So it's not the case that nothing alive now gives us clues about the, uh, the form of our own ancestors. But octopuses are really a different kind of thing. They're, they're a contemporaneous product. They're something that evolution built uh, alongside the building of creatures like us and they wind up with this remarkable range of similarities and differences, a, a, a body so different from ours, but eyes that are built independently on a very similar design to our eyes and all sorts of behavioral, all sorts of behavioral features that have, again, a kind of mix of similarities and differences from us. Yeah, that's really stunning. A lot of the details in the book about you know, what it's like potentially to be an octopus are really just... Uh, just jaw dropping in so many ways. I was I was thinking when you're talking about the the ladder of uh, higher and lower animals, about the long history of humans trying to measure intelligence and measure this idea of sort of self awareness, et cetera, all of which is very complicated, but but shares with that typical ladder approach, usually of it always being by a human metric or a human ruler of trying to hold up this other animal to see you know how much when we ask like how intelligent is it or how. Um, conscious is it in some ways the real question that seems to be being asked there is how is it intelligent like we are and how close to intelligent is it like us or how is it conscious in the same way that we're conscious and so I'm curious when you think about how to study octopuses and to think about these questions of other minds how do you go about that with a creature that's so different? On your blog is really fascinating, the discussion of all sorts of studies that other researchers are doing, um, of marine biologists and people in labs, but then a lot of your work is taking place in the field. And how do you think about um, the role of sort of observing the octopus and the usefulness of observing the octopus in the wild versus lab studies? I, I think the two are very much complementary, uh, lab work and, and field work. I see myself as fortunate because... My, my day job is philosophy. Uh, that's what I that's what I essentially do do for a living, and all of the marine stuff, all of the empirical work that I do with octopuses is is a, a sideline in a sense. And because it's a sideline, I have the luxury of just roaming from question to question. Um, I'm restricted to thinking about questions that can be addressed in a very 
uh, low tech and low expense way. But that's fine because I think that a huge amount can be learned about these animals just by watching them, uh, not just by watching them uh, as a diver, but by leaving video cameras down. This is something we do a lot of. We we leave uh, little GoPro video cameras down at octopus sites and uh, collect really now sort of massive amounts of video data, which which it's very hard to make sense of in some cases. Uh, but there's a lot of behaviours. Uh, that you see in wild octopuses, which have really never been studied, uh, which can be revealed just by taking video and looking at them. And I'm aware of the fact that there are, uh, scientifically speaking, pitfalls to this kind of work because you can't control for all sorts of all sorts of causal factors. And um, I imagine that as the years uh, go on there'll be field, sorry, there'll be laboratory work that has a kind of follow-up relationship to some of the work that we're doing in the field, where we're just trying to work out uh, what, what on earth these animals are doing. It's in some ways surprising that there's not that much empirical work being done on octopus behavior and less still that's based in the field. Uh, they're quite inconvenient animals to study. So I'm very uh, fortunate to have to have these have these friends in particular, uh, my friend Matt Lawrence, who discovered the site in Australia, which we call Octopolis, where you reliably have quite a lot of octopuses present, and where I think most importantly, because the densities are high, the animals have to learn to deal with each other, have to get along, have to find a way to coexist in densities that probably are somewhat unusual for this species. So watching the animals. Um, just having to um, make sense of each other as fellow occupants of a relatively small environment and having to navigate all the demands of territory and uh, questions about mating, uh, that really has been extremely interesting. And I, I feel very fortunate to, be, uh, to, be, to have access to these places where behaviours of this kind are being revealed. So I didn't expect to guffaw while reading this book, but I did at the moment when you recount the lab experiments designed to model intelligence in a controlled manner in the octopus in which the octopus um, intervened. So this raised a ton of questions for me, one of which was when we're using the term intelligence or even complexity and thinking about what it means to measure that empirically in the way that you're doing in the field versus experimentally. Do you see any kind of paradox around the idea of modeling experimentally intelligence as you define it in the book, which to me seem to be, you're talking about behaviors that are flexible, novel, unpredictable. Is there an ex a kind of experiment that would accommodate that kind of behavior that we, we would wanna call intelligent in like a robust sense? I don't think it's a. I don't think it's paradoxical. Um, I think there's a, a an interesting problem with octopuses in the lab, which is that when you when people try to, especially you know historically in earlier decades, when people have tried to get octopuses to perform standard sorts of experiments on learning and problem solving of the sort that have been developed originally for animals like rats and pigeons and things like that. Uh, octopuses do okay often at exper in, in experimental settings of that kind, but when you read the fine print of the scientific paper, you often get a sense, get this I mean, sometimes quite amusing sense that really having an octopus in a lab trying to get it to do uh, something fairly reliable and rule-governed often results in a kind of chaos. I mean, the animals just will not play along. They have their own interests in the apparatus. They'd much rather take things apart than, than, than do what you expect them to do or what you want them to do. So the, the very kind of exploratory way of being that octopuses have and that I think of as a, as a mark of certain kinds of mental attributes, uh, that itself makes, makes laboratory work quite sort of interestingly frustrating in many cases where the octopuses uh, take things apart. They're always trying to get, they're always trying to get away. 
Uh, they play with objects that were not intended uh, to be played with. Uh, yesterday at the conference I'm at right now, a talk was given by Jennifer Mather, who's uh, one of the best-known octopus behavior researchers. She's been doing it for many decades. And she was describing uh, at dinner after, after our conference session a variety of cases in which uh, you know, octopuses just have a quite different relationship to the objects that populate their, their tanks in captivity to, to any other animal. Uh, you put in thermometers, they regard it as something to explore and play with and take apart. Uh, the water intake and uh, exhaust valves in the tank are of great interest to the animals. Uh, she had some octopuses who would, would sort of use the, uh, the water jets that were controlling water levels in their tank as a means to play by sort of bouncing objects back and forward uh, in the jet. There's all sorts of things they do that are just really not on the list of what people were wanting to do, wanting them to do in an experimental setting. And this, this could interfere with a kind of uh, regimented and standard sort of test of intelligence or test of learning. Uh, you know, in, in a way, I think, which is informative about the different kind of, 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 of way of being that they have, the, the different kinds of creatures that they are, that continually exploring they're continually feeling around uh trying to get a sense of the uh the the capacities and the structure of the objects that are around them um i think of this as just you know among the things we can learn uh from the animals it i guess it doesn't it doesn't sort of bother me particularly as a kind of as generating a kind of a, a paradox though it certainly leads to practical difficulties i suppose you might say that um if intelligence is about flexibility uh in part at least and about uh not performing behaviors in a stereotyped repetitive way but doing different sorts of things uh then it is true that uh, it can be difficult to study that very property because you're continually producing, especially in the case of the octopus, uh, behaviors in relation to your apparatus that were not on the list of things that you were officially interested in looking for, not on the list of things that were interesting to you. So they do, they do have a tendency to, uh, just from their, as a result of their sheer ex exploratoriness, to, to thwart expectations and plans in the lab. Hearing you talk about the, the challenges and the complexities of studying octopuses in the lab reminded me of a book called The Wachula Woods Accord by Charles Siebert. And he writes in this book about um, chimpanzees in roadside zoos in America and basically uh, says at one point in the book that he almost titled it Humanzees because he's, uh, he's talking about chimpanzees that have been raised largely in um, captivity. They've either been born there or effectively spent their entire lives um, in human households, kind of being raised like human children. And they're, then when they reach you know, 10 or so years, they're very clearly not humans, but they're not exactly chimpanzees either, having been raised in this, in this very different culture. And I know it sounds like the octopuses are very hard to breed in captivity, so these are largely wild octopuses, I think, that are being then studied in, um, in captivity. But I'm curious whether, whether you think that, that that same point of, you know, is this really the same animal in captivity, um, if you, especially when you take into account the ways in which the animal and its environment are so closely interlinked and, you know, co-evolved, where if you remove an animal from its environment, is it really the same animal in captivity as it is in the wild? Yeah, I'd never thought about that question before. That's an interesting question I, I, and I take the point uh, in the case of octopuses you know I, I and I can't think of anybody else who's asked the question but as you say it's an interesting question is it the case that when an octopus has spent uh, a long time in a tank in a captive setting that it acquires um, a set of behaviors and capacities that are significantly different from what you would have in the wild or is it the case that what you're seeing in captivity in these animals is just a sort of natural expression of the same kind of dispositions in the animal but being expressed in a somewhat unusual setting? I, I don't know. Um, there are plenty of people who've kept octopuses for a reasonable amount of time as pets uh, in their homes in a, in a captive setting. Now, when I say a reasonable amount of time, here I have in mind the fact that octopuses have quite short lifespans. So 
that kind of 10-year duration that a chimp might have is not something that you would ever get with an octopus. Um, but as you ask this question, I find myself quite curious, uh, and I've never asked, I don't know if anyone really knows uh, whether, and it would be actually quite hard to answer this question even, even once it's been asked, whether an octopus in a captive setting uh, really does acquire a different set of basic tendencies and capacities and, and uh, cognitive habits as opposed to having the same sorts of habits but just expressing them in an unusual setting. So I think it's a very interesting question and I, uh, I have nothing but curiosity uh, in response to it. Yeah, another way of thinking about it, um, there's a professor here at Yale Law School named Doug Kaiser, and he wrote a piece uh, a few years ago, which was about the Zanesville, Ohio animal massacre in which um, a local a local guy had basically collected a bunch of exotic animals and um, and uh, it ended in disaster, understandably. But uh, but he, he was writing about largely sort of the human desire to possess wild animals. And I think it also applies to scientific study in some ways. And so he describes sort of the human desire to admire and to 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 possess a wild animal is like trying to feel a spinning coin and that we want to know what a spinning coin feels like so we reach out to grab it and in the process of doing so we change the very nature of the thing and in a way it's almost impossible to fully it's impossible to do <laughs> i suppose which reminds reminded me of what, of what you're just saying about trying to understand the octopuses as well right it's impossible to do in a kind of complete way right because I mean, because your your acts of trying to interact with them and and study them will have some effect. Now, I mean, certain kinds of field work don't really have this problem. It's something which is specific to uh, the captive the captive setting. Um, and in that captive setting, I would I would again think right. There's a, there's a distinction here. You, you might have you know all, all cases are not of a piece. You might have a situation where there are some animals that quite quickly and profoundly alter their relationships to all sorts of things as a consequence of, of captivity and just do quite different things, things that really have no analog at all in the wild. But you might, have, you might also have cases where uh, there's, there's rather little effect and you're not quite in that case uh, succeeding in picking up the spinning coin or trying to sort of interact with it as it spins in a tactile manner. But you could, you know, in some cases perhaps get some approximation to it. And uh, I agree with the person who says, you know, be aware of the possibility that the animal that you're interacting with in captivity, <coughs> excuse me, has been profoundly altered by that new setting. But I would also say uh, it's, it's very much an empirical question what the size of the effects is. There, there might be some animals in which the wild dispositions are, are really retained in fairly intact form and other animals in which they're not. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I found very delightful in the book is the degree to which octopuses have just totally resisted human domination. <laughs> and um, and uh, I, I found that quite quite interesting, quite moving. But to your point about, you know, of, of course, in the classics of Thomas Nagelwave, what's it like to be a bat? It's impossible to fully know what it's like to be an octopus. But one thing I found very, very striking about the book that is that in addition to being very brilliant on just an intellectual and philosophical level, of course, it's very empathetic and compassionate, I think, in that um, necessarily so, and in, in, in a way that's not at all, you know, sentimental, but uh, imaginative, really, and seeing and in, in trying to imagine, you know, what it's like to be in another creatures shoes or tentacles as it is um and i'm curious do you see that is that is one of your goals to try to i, I noticed that the the book is dedicated to all those who protect the ocean and is, is one of the goals of the book to try to induce more compassion for, for creatures that are so dissimilar from ourselves certainly and uh i think that right there are two projects here which are related but but also distinct from each other one is just understanding uh, trying to get a bit un better understanding of uh, the lives of these animals and what their experience is like. And a related but distinct project is uh, inducing care and compassion. Uh, and that follows you know, fairly naturally from the first, but I, I do think of them as distinct. The first of those projects, I think, is inevitably part of the philosophical 
project of trying to understand how it's possible that minds can exist at all in a material world. So thanks to Nagel in his What Is It Like to Be a Bat article from 74, uh, you know, thanks to him, general questions about what it is for a mind to be physically realized are now quite often discussed in conjunction with this question, you know, how could we, given the kinds of beings that we are, understand what it would be like uh, to be, to have experiences as a very different sort of animal. And I, I welcome that. You know, I think that the Nagel, the Nagel paper was, in nearly all respect, a, a very good one. And uh, I, th I think that's been a sort of a, a, a good thing for philosophers of mind to really think about. I do think there's also a little bit of a tendency for people to be to be too pessimistic on this question. You know, how could we ever know what it's like to be to be an animal quite different from ourselves? Uh, you know, it's it's possible that I'm naive about this, but I doubt it. And I think that by means of uh, carefully carefully um, you know carefully thought out imaginative maneuvers, it is possible to get inside the experience of other sorts of animals provisionally and to some extent. So in the case of octopuses, for example, if we ask what it's like to be an octopus, as I see it, there's, there's two sort of stages in that imagining, uh, or at least, you know, many stages, but I'll, I'll, I'll talk specifically about two. And one of them, I think, is quite readily done. And another one I think of as vastly more difficult. So the one that I think of as more readily, as fairly readily done, is trying to get a sense of what the the sensory world of an octopus might be like. So in the case of an octopus, we have uh, it's a very visual animal. They have good eyes. They have a camera eye that can uh, that can focus objects and locate objects in space. They, I mean, that's a point of important similarity with us. They have, however, probably some degree of light sensitivity um, across all of their body, across all of their skin. This is something that had been speculated about for quite a while, but uh, now seems to be looking increasingly likely. It would be a bit too much to say they can see with their skin, but there's a kind of, uh, there's a kind of sensitivity to light and uh, perhaps to some extent to patterns in light that would be characteristic, that would be uh, found across all of their skin. Uh, thirdly, uh, octopuses, whenever they touch anything with those arms, with their suckers, they're not just touching it in the sense of feeling shape, but they're tasting. So everything that's being touched is being tasted. Now, if I try to imagine, uh, if I try to imagine what it's like to be an animal with those three capacities, with, with eyes that are similar to human eyes, uh, probably, you know, monochrome most likely, uh, although this, there seems to be some capacity perhaps that they have to, to distinguish colors in some ways. If I imagine what it's like to have um, eyes that are not so dissimilar from our eyes, but a kind of a, a sort of hint of visual capacity across the whole of the body, plus this very rich uh, taste-like interaction with things um, across uh, much of the body. I think that's, I think that's something we can make some headway into getting inside as a kind of imaginative move. I think I can imagine uh, something about what that would be like. Now, from there, if we try to get inside octopus experience, there's another feature that is, I think, far more of an obstacle and a challenge. And that's dealing with the fact that they are, as we were discussing earlier in our, in our discussion, they're much less unified animals than us with respect to their nervous systems, less centralized. And there may be less of a centralized self in the case of an octopus than there is with us. And, you know, if someone like Nagel says, you know, how will you ever understand what it's like to be an animal of that kind? Right. That I agree is quite a lot harder. That is, that is uh, more of a challenge. Um, but, but as I'm emphasizing, I think different features of animal experiences, different features of animal experience pose different kinds of problems with different degrees of difficulty in this area. And I, I think a, a general pessimism about getting inside the minds of other animals is, uh, there's often 
it's, it's often overstated. People think it's, it's more impossible than perhaps it is. Right. So in the book, you distinguish also between intelligence and subjective experience. And we've talked about some of the ways that one could think about modeling intelligence empirically. So, but just to home in on that, like, what, how do you think about this idea of investigating the presence of subjective experience empirically? It sounds like participant observation here is more of a control than a contaminant in that this, the, your investigations would be significantly different if you were to conduct them in the Monterey Aquarium, for example. Let's say someone says, well, wait a second, when you say mind, or especially when you're, by mind you mean just awareness, subjective awareness, is that something like, I mean, clearly it's not like something like a chemical that we can look at in the lab, but it's not either something that we're just projecting. We're not bound to this totally solipsistic picture of things. So I'm just curious how you think about studying subjective experience different than, say, thinking about if someone were to say, oh, wait, that's like saying somebody's a citizen and saying they're a barbarian. What you're tracking is just your relationship to them and your ability to imagine yourself into their shoes. In trying to... We had a discussion about this at the conference that I'm currently at yesterday, actually. Uh, I'm at the Philosophy of Science Association conference, and we had a good session on animal sentience, which had some discussion of this. And um, I think that it's natural to think about the project in a way in which there's a complementary relationship, firstly, between laboratory work and, and field work, uh, You've got to work out what's going on inside the animals, what kind of capacities they have, and laboratory work is inevitably uh, important in that. But you've also got to get a sense of what they naturally do, what kind of behaviours are characteristic of the way that they inhabit the world, and field work is particularly important there. And the result of these various lines of investigation, as I see it, is to get a handle on what might be described as bridging traits or uh, bridging characteristics. These are biological features of the organism, features of the animal that are special in the kind of relationship they have to facts about experience. So, for example, if you're trying to work out, I mean, here's here's a question that arises, I think, not just about octopuses and not so much about octopuses, but arises generally about animals. If you're trying to work out whether an animal has experience at all, there's various questions you can ask. But here here are are two questions set up in a way that biological research is uh, likely to be informative about them. Firstly, what kind of point of view does the animal have on the world? Uh, Given its structure, given its sensory capacities, given the kind of traffic that in, that characterizes its relationships to environment, uh, what kind of point of view does it have? What kind of perspective does the animal have? How do things seem to the animal? Now, once you're asking a question like that, how do things seem to the animal, you're quite close to asking questions about what it's like to be that animal. And I think you can ask biologically exactly that question. You know, how will things seem to an animal with these sorts of capacities, with this sort of organization. So that's one kind of question that concerns what might be seen as a a bridging trait. Another one which is uh, closely related but in some ways interestingly distinct, I think, concerns not so much the tracking of events and facts and objects by the animal but evaluation by the animal, you know, Uh, what sorts of things are treated as good or as bad, as welcome or as unwelcome, as uh, as pleasurable or painful by the animal? What sorts of events does it react to in a way that expresses its own valuation of the event? What, you know, which events are valued and which events are disvalued by the animal? What kind of evaluative profile does the animal have in its in its uh, relationship to events that that occur in its life? Now, that also I think of something which can be addressed biologically. It's not something which is, in some way, outside of science or uh, especially intractable from a scientific point of view. And once we have a understanding of what's going on there, we we learn some more about what it's like to be that animal. 
So I think there's a couple of ways in that where we use a combination of different kinds of scientific and to some extent philosophical work and get a sense of what the animal's point of view is, what kind of perspective it has on the world, whether it has any kind of perspective at all on the world. I mean, in some kinds of organisms, I think the answer might be, well, it doesn't really have a point of view. It doesn't really have a perspective, really. It, it has something, it has a relationship to the world that is of a different kind. Now, I don't think that's true of octopuses. I think they, they, they are more like us in that they have a definite perspective. And they also have uh, quite a lot of richness in their, in their evaluative properties, in, in what they value and what they disvalue. So I think that these are things that can be, I think these are things that can be known. I, I think it's not easy and I think that there's no shortcut. I think it's natural to approach these questions with a sort of combination of, a combination of methods, but not, it's not impossible. Right. So on that point, right, of what the animal is valuing, I thought one of the most fascinating moments in the book was when you talk about what it's like to be floating there and being kind of conspicuously, it felt ignored by the octopus um, as potential, or I'm sorry, maybe by the yeah, cuttlefish. cuttlefish that... By the cuttlefish, right. And that being in some ways one of the most intriguing experiences. Yeah, that was that that was weird, and I I still a bit baffled by this. So giant cuttlefish, um, you know, you're talking about an animal which is swimming, looks a bit like a squid, swimming like a, a big flattened squid with with good eyes and uh, in some ways remarkably good eyes. Sometimes I'm with these animals, and in particular they can see other members of their species before I can. Now human eyes are supposed to be quite a bit better. Uh, especially at distance than cephalopod eyes, but sometimes I'm, I'm struck by how good their their vision is. Uh, and so, given that, it's very odd when you're in the water with them. You know, quite a bit bigger than they are, and making a lot more commotion in the water than them. But in some cases, the animal is just absolutely determined to ignore you. It seems uh, will swim straight towards you, and uh, no matter what you do there's a kind of unwillingness to register your existence. And I, I still don't really understand what's going on in those cases. And it, it's, it's irresistible to try to put yourself inside, inside their heads and try to work out how the encounter seems from their point of view. But that's one of the kinds of encounter that is, that is especially baffling to try to, uh, to try to get inside from their point of view. That's really fascinating. And it makes me think then, then if you, when you start thinking about the point of view, I think that then income a lot of moral implications too for then how we how we treat them too and I'm curious like in at least in the US today under the law the law is remarkably pre-darwinian it seems still and that pretty much everything is divided into either you're a person with standing or you're a thing and then when you think about evolution of course something like an octopus or really any animal is pretty clearly neither and so I wonder like in in I wonder if, if you think about that, but then also in, in the course of your of your study of the octopuses over over your lifetime, do you think that there should be um, stronger laws to protect how they're how they're treated, either in laboratories or how their land how their habitats are treated in the wild? Right, uh, and this also enables me to come back to as an earlier part of a, a question which I didn't I didn't uh, discuss fully at the time, which is whether an, an aim of my book is partly to induce uh, a greater degree of compassion for the animals. And I, I do hope to do that. I think that um, octopuses in particular, but also marine life in general, uh, is, this is, this is a, a, a part of life where we have habits of, 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 of mistreatment and uh, overuse and a lack of compassion for the animals and just a, a, a lack of respect for the whole for the whole realm of the oceans and I would very much like to make you know some small difference with respect to uh, these sets of these kinds of dispositions on the part of people I, I think we should look at the ocean in in quite a different way and the animals within it now with respect to octopuses in particular I'm very glad that there's a trend now not to treat them nearly as badly in laboratories as was common a few decades ago. Uh, there's a lot more awareness either, in some cases officially, so in the EU and in uh, some other places, there, there are now uh, rules regarding the use of octopuses in, in 
laboratory work that are similar to the rules that apply to vertebrates. Their octopuses are regarded as a kind of honorary vertebrate in some places. Uh, not yet in the U.S., but many people in the U.S. who do work on these animals now have internalized a kind of similar, uh, a similar outlook. They think, right, you can't, you, you can't regard octopuses as equivalent to fruit flies with respect to the kind of treatment that you can uh, impose on them in a lab. And I'm very pleased about that. Whenever I, I mean, people often write to me and they say, oh, you know, there's this new project we're getting underway where we're going to study octopuses from a, a, a neuroscientific point of view. And I always have very mixed feelings about this when I get these messages, because on the one hand, I think it's good to try to understand the animals better. But on the other hand, neuroscientific work is almost always harmful to the animals who are the experimental subjects. Um, and I'm always glad when there's more of an emphasis on just behavioral study rather than neuroscientific work. I do think octopuses are inevitably going to be used somewhat more in uh, neuroscientific work than they, than they had before. And I, I have, as I say, very mixed feelings about this. I'd be quite glad. I'm always glad when it turns out that octopuses are too much of a hassle uh, to, to use in a particular, in, in experiments of that sort and when they're, when they're not employed that way. There are a few measures around to look at farming octopuses for food, and that is something I'm not very happy about, I must say. Uh, I think eating octopuses in general, it's far from the most troubling or the worst thing that humans do with respect to their food choices. And octopuses, when they're wild-caught, uh, you're catching an animal which is wild-caught rather than farmed, not endangered, and very short-lived. So the difference you're making to the life of that individual uh, by catching and eating it is nothing like, it's nothing like the kind of impact you're having um, on an animal that is raised in the, a context of, of cruel modern factory farming. So I think octopuses are, um, are, are you know, far from the worst choices with respect to animal products. Now, I don't eat octopuses, uh, even though I'm not a vegetarian. I, I see myself as a, a sort of super selective omnivore, um, but I don't eat octopuses in part just because I have too much affection for them. Uh, it, would, it would seem like a, a bad idea for that reason. Um, so, right, so I think, you know, I, ho I hope octopuses are never farmed. I hope all the attempts to farm them do not get off the ground because the octopuses uh, cause too much trouble. I'd be very pleased if that turned out to be the way things go. I think it would be a good thing if there was, uh, to some extent, even more stringent rules put in place on people who want to do invasive neuroscientific experiments on octopuses. You know, but I, th I think of that as an instance of a general view, which is that I would like to see less invasive neuroscientific experiments in general. I, th I think it would be nice if there was a whole lot less curiosity-driven work that involves inter interfering with the nervous systems of living animals. Um, and right, with respect to, with respect to fishing and, and the, the eating of wild caught octopuses, as I say, I don't regard it as one of the sort of one of the anywhere, anything like one of the worst things that people do in this area. Um, but Again, I'm I'm always a little bit sad when I see octopuses in the in the fish market shelf or on the window. Yeah, on your on your blog, Metazoa enriches, which is really fantastic, and I recommend to anyone. You had a really interesting post recently about um, related to this about uh, which was covered a lot in the news about an MDMA and ecstasy study that had been done with octopuses and how they reacted. And then you you'd written an article about that in the Guardian, and then uh, which is very thoughtful and a very thoughtful follow up on your blog about about the ethics and sort of how you think about the traditional argument of you know one of the reasons we uh, shouldn't eat octopuses or uh, this wasn't about eating octopuses, of course, it was about how the ex octopus was treated in the experiment. But perhaps perhaps there are similarities. But one of the reasons why we shouldn't treat them badly in any sphere is because of the impact that it would have on our own character or um, uh, uh, on who we are. And, and you talk about how, how in a way that this is a compelling argument, but it's also uh, a difficult one to uphold. The, the version of that, well, the idea in the vicinity of that argument that I endorse in that blog post is 
a little different from the one you just described. Uh, and I'll, I'll go through the distinction. Oh, please feel free yeah, to correct I'll, me. I'll go through too. the distinction in a second. Also, partly as a consequence of, of the exchanges around that, uh, that uh, recent body of scientific work, I'm going to write a much more considered and detailed treatment of where I am with respect to questions about uh, the treatment of animals and in particular uh, the raising of animals for food. So by the time that this podcast goes up, that will probably be uh, posted on the blog. And that comes in part also out of a t- I gave a talk recently to a, univer- a student group at University of Sydney, the Effective Altruism Group, where we were talking about uh, the, the, the basic ethics of, of farming and captivity and those sorts of things. And I have, I have as I say, a kind of in-between view on those questions. I'm not opposed to all farming, even though I think that farming should be massively reformed. Uh, let me come back to that, right, the, the, the point that you just made. There's a tradition in philosophy, and, and Immanuel Kant is the, is the sort of famous exemplar uh, of this tradition. There's a tradition of saying that uh, the, the main reason, or perhaps even the sole reason, or at least in other versions, a reason we have to be humane and decent to non-human animals is uh, the fact that if we were not, it would have bad effects on our own character. It would be kind of uh, undermining or degrading or in other ways negative with respect to how we are on our side of the relationship. And then we might carry those those effects forward into our relationships with, with humans. Now, that you know, I think that's a real thing, but I don't think it's a very important part of the overall calculation or the overall uh, sort of reasoning process we should go through when thinking about our treatment of animals. So I, I think of it as, as, a, as a sort of minor, as, as, as a minor piece of the puzzle. Something which I think of as a slightly uh, bigger piece or more important piece that has, for me, very unclear relationships to that first idea. And this is probably what you were, well, maybe what you were picking up on, is something that can be described in terms of a prop, having a proper relationship with the animals and treating the animals with dignity and avoiding treating animals that we control in a way that involves a kind of uh, you know, profound indignities. So in the case of the, uh, the experiment with octopuses and ecstasy, some people who responded to that experiment said, you know, we're tormenting the animals, we're making them suffer, this is terrible. And I don't think that's true. I think it's pretty unlikely that the octopuses really suffered a great deal in this, in this experiment. A few of them probably did when they were trying to get the dosage of ecstasy right, uh, but um, probably most did not really suffer. And I think that when people responded to that experiment by talking of, of torment and uh, suffering, really what they were picking up on was something like the kind of uh, profound indignity in the... Uh, situation we had placed the animals in. We're putting them in a situation where they were not suffering, but there's just something inappropriately, it's, it's just sort of out, they're profoundly out of place. And uh, it's a kind of trivial, a trivial looking motivation that we have to place the animals in this pr- very unnatural situation. And that amounts to a kind of ind- indignity imp- imposed upon them. Now, when I describe the situation in those terms, I'm aware of the uh, the oddness of this description. I mean, dignity is a concept that really has its has its natural home in human relations, not in our relationships with animals. But to some extent, I find it a compelling or at least a worth exploring uh, concept when thinking about our relationships with the animals. And it's not that it's us being undignified or uh, betraying our own character in some way in doing these things, it's that there's a kind of relationship that we can have with animals whose lives we control that accords them a degree of dignity. And when we don't do that, sometimes it results in terrible physical suffering and sometimes it doesn't. And I'm not sure whether it's a bad thing to do this even when it doesn't cause them physical suffering. But I I, I suspect I don't want to. I suspect it's something it would be good to avoid. So these are the sorts of things I'm, I'm struggling with at the moment. I think of these as quite difficult problems and I don't have settled views about them. But uh, 
I think there's more to consider than just physical suffering when we ask what kind of relationship we should have with the animals whose lives we control. Lindsay and I were immensely excited to uh, see a few blog posts ago on your blog that you mentioned that you're working on another book on animals now, which I assume, will that book be about these sorts of topics in part? The, so there'll be two, two follow-up books to other mine. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, the, the next one, which I'm working on at the moment, is the main thing it's going to consider is just more different kinds of animals, the whole history of animal life. I've been working on the chapter on fish recently, and I didn't expect to find that uh, a chapter I would find especially enthralling to work on, but I really have. I'm finding fish incredibly interesting animals, both to learn about and also to, in my uh, time in the water, trying to get into a little different relationship with, just trying to sort of interact with them a little bit more and a little differently than before. So there'll be, there'll be a book. Uh, the next one will be just about more animals and also trying to make a more definite push towards uh, giving a philosophical theory of how it is that it's possible to have minds in a physical world. So it's, the, the materialist project will be more front and center in that book. And then the third book in the series will be more overtly concerned with um, our relationships to both animals and to the earth as a whole, uh, how, how we should think of our, how we should think of our, our lives in relationships to the lives of other animals and to the overall processes of change on Earth, including things like climate change and environmental degradation and things like that. So the third one will press harder at what you might think of as the more applied questions or the more practical questions. Uh, the title of the third one will be Living on Earth, and it'll be uh, broad in a way that that title suggests. Terrific. Well, we really cannot wait. We'll be both be pre-ordering both of those. It'll be terrific, terrific to have someone with um, such intense clarity of thought, but also just wide-ranging knowledge and immense curiosity focused on these issues. So I can't wait. <laughs> Neither Lindsay, can I. And Lindsay, we're, we're wondering, too, if the, if you have a couple of books, two or three books that have impacted your thinking, either in the, the animal space, the philosophy of mind space, the philosophy of science space, or something totally different. I was reading how um, you had said at one point that it was an English teacher and reading Conrad and Solzhenitsyn that um, catalyzed your interest in the philosophy of mind, um, oh, yeah. which I just found, yeah, that, and I, yeah. Yeah, and so, I mean, because I think one of the most striking things about the book is the, is the vivid passages of the encounters you have with the animals, like when the cuttlefish is doing its display, for example. And, um, yeah, and I mean, of course, it brings us back to Nagel a little bit about what kind of what kind of language gets us to the place where we can potentially make the imaginative leaps that you're doing in the book? So, so all that's to say, we're curious about particular books that have been um, profound for you in your in your thinking. Right, I'm glad to be reminded of those that sort of that ancient history with uh, the the English teacher in high school who who got me thinking along a lines that combined a kind of literary and philosophical interest. Um, for much of my career, I've, I've written philosophy of science in a much drier way. So one of the things I enjoyed with the project of Other Minds was trying to dip back into a slightly more, a slightly more uh, artistic way of thinking about the project of, of writing. And that I will, uh, I hope, uh, continue as, as best I can. The two books I'm going to mention, though, are, are much more obvious cases because these are books I read recently that have, uh, in both cases, have really made me think hard. And as I say, that they're, they're rather obvious candidates for this. Uh, Peter Singer's book *Animal Liberation* is a book I think about all the time because he's just such a he's such a powerful writer, and his arguments are so clear, and they're such a challenge. I mean, if you take Singer's views completely seriously, it would involve a very profound change in how we relate to non-human animals. Uh, so Peter Singer's book, Animal Liberation, I think is one that, uh, I mean, the book is a classic and deservedly so. It's still even many decades on, and in its new editions, it, it never loses its power. Uh, the second book is another animals book, uh, which is Carl Safina's book, Beyond Words. Uh, that's a really beautifully written book, and it's a book that focuses on animals of a sort that I've, I haven't 
tried to get inside the minds of animals like killer whales and wolves in particular, elephants in addition. Uh, Safina's book, I think, is is especially powerful as a as uh, well. It, it's especially powerful as an attempt to induce empathy and care and concern. Uh, to return to an earlier theme in our conversation, it, it's it's really remarkably powerful as a book of that kind. Dr. Godfrey Smith, thank you so much for joining us. Been a pleasure. Thank you too to our wonderful producer Ryan McAvoy, the Yale Broadcast Studio and the Yale Human Nature Lab for making this episode possible. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals and leave us a review on Yale University's iTunes or SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.